If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here we are, sandwiched between storm number one and two winter of 2024. I can't lie, it's a little bit better than a global pandemic. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. There's your optimism. Hey, you know, anytime anybody says to you, life sucks. Um, you know, this is terrible. That's it. It's like, hey, you know what's better than a global pandemic? There you go. There's the saying for 2024 as we uh, forge ahead and look to the brighter side of life. <laughs> well, it's better than a global. You know, we got stuck with the prime minister for another year. Well, it's better than a global pandemic. Uh, you know, I can't afford groceries or my house. Well, it's better than a global pandemic. Because that's one way to look at it. All right. Uh, it is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. So uh, that slot that we got yesterday, obviously, it doesn't even look like we got anything. Uh, but there's a second one on the way, and that's coming uh, late tomorrow. And, um, yeah, uh, you got to get ready for that, too. So we're kind of sandwiched between the two. And I think this one's going to be a real one in the sense that... <laughs> Uh, once it comes in, uh, I think it's going to lock in because temperatures are going to stay cold. I don't think we're going to have any more of this flip-flop stuff, uh, at least through uh, the next couple of weeks or so. It looks like temperatures are uh, are getting pretty cool. So there you go. Uh, what else we got? Uh, another strong show coming up, and we'll tell you about that in just a second. But, you know, I was... Um I was, uh, you know, you're looking over the, the situation with the tent encampments and, you know, there's issues in the media about people now with uh, motor homes uh, coming in or trailers or, or, or what have you. And, you know, of course, then, well, what do we do? How do we get rid of this? How do we tow these away? What do we do? And around and around and around we go. And I'm not surprised at where we are because, when we were setting out guidelines in the summer for tent encampments, which was supposed to be a solution, albeit temporary, uh, nobody seemed to consider that 30 days or 60 days later, or even 90 days later, they'd be under snow. So I thought that this was, because um, really it's like, you know, you've got no place to stay. And I guess, you know, you worry about the next day as opposed to next week or next month. I understand the immediacy of all of that. But if you're in the people that are planning for all of this, and, you know, here we are, we've got a group, and, and God bless them, trying to get, uh, you know, tiny homes or spaces or what have you put together. Uh, we talked to Kitchener-Waterloo a while ago about this, and they seem to have a system set up that works for them. And we don't have issues like we're seeing in and around Hamilton and, and other cities, towns, hamlets, uh, where this, you know, where, where the issue of homelessness exists. And, and again, I've never said, I've never thought, and, and, you know, I said this way back in the summer, this is not a solution. And it's not a solution because it's not this, that, or the other. It's not a solution because we have winter. And we're sort of lucky in a sense that it's been late in coming. And this year it's been, you know, milder than normal. But it's coming. And you know what it is, January, February, March. So, um, 
you know, it, it just seems this was a, a dumb idea right from the start, and, and it was incredibly short-sighted. So bringing me to my next point, as we, you know, uh, talk about towing RVs out and trying to figure out a solution, you know, my pa- my parents were big campers way back when, and uh, they've since both passed away, and they're at the big campground in the sky somewhere. So, um, but I remember them telling me, and I remember seeing this, because we used to do this a lot when we were kids as well, uh, you know, that uh, a lot of camp grounds were being put out of business because people were staying overnight in the Walmart parking lot off the interstate uh, because people, Walmart knew you'd come out of your camper and then go right in there for something to eat or buy something of some sort. So, um, you know, and this was at the detriment to the local campgrounds and such that relied on overnight campers. So anyway, you know, one plus one equals two. So here we are uh, encouraging people to stay in tents or certainly not doing much other than coming up with protocol and rules and regulations uh, to keep them safe. Um, and, and we're, you know, we're looking to tow away what could be another solution. So, and I've seen this in, in situations in British Columbia, there's examples of it in the United States, but you know, why not take what Kitchener is doing and rather than waiting for the dance of tiny houses or homes or a solution from the city or, uh, you know, housing or temporary housing or affordable housing or any spin populist word you want to say, Um, why not provide a solution that works now and then go from there? So if you're going to let people just basically throw tents up and no kind of thing, why not go halfway between there and the tiny homes? So why can't you find a piece of, whether it's industrial, on the edge of the city, what have you, where people can set up things like a motor home or, you know, a, a house trailer? And you run it just like you would any other campground. There's places to put your garbage. There's, like people live in them all the time. And they and, and, and some, you know, long term. So why can't we figure out a midway, a midway point solution with something like that? Instead of like, the only answer is affordable housing and we can't do anything until we can get an apartment building we may build it. But like, you know, like it's nuts. And then when we come up with temporary solutions, they're either in the back door where nobody's been consulted or, you know, again, they don't they don't account for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days down the road. And, you know, I remember when we were talking about these before, people were saying, well, they're not close to services. Well, in KW, they either bring the services there or they use a shuttle bus back and forth. So there's ways to do this if people want to get together. But it seems that whether it's, you know, council in this city or others or what have you, and, and everybody knows everybody's overtaxed. It's, there's no simple solution here. It's a complex problem. But again, are we really looking for a solution or are we just looking to keep the voters quiet for a while? Just do this and maybe nobody will notice. Let's just keep this. It looks like we're doing something, but we're really not. And until we get there, we're going to be going around in circles. But again, don't pretend to know all the answers. But, you know, if tents work, why wouldn't RVs in a specific area with specific rules run like a normal provincial campground? Can we not do it and at least get these poor people out of the cold? 
All right. I remember, uh, and, and this was uh, a few years ago, uh, having the Hamilton Police Service, or at least a good portion of the K-9 unit, in the studio with me. And, uh, and, and, and it was just an incredible experience, because these dogs are every bit as professional and every bit as uh as as passionate as their handlers and the police officers that work with them are and it is fascinating to watch uh, both handler uh, constable and and dog it's it was fun to see them all together and uh, man i often thought if i tried to make a run i probably would have got three steps before down i was so one of those dogs has just retired a 10-year veteran of the hamilton police service has retired amid honors from his fellow officers jake the police dog joined the service in 2014 served alongside his handler, Constable Kevin Wilson, throughout his career, and uh, and Wilson joining the service in 2008 before transferring to the K-9 unit to serve with Jake. To join us now, Constable Kevin Wilson, Hamilton Police Service, Jake's former handler, and here now. Kevin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am doing very well, Scott. Thanks. It's good to, uh, good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's great. I remember when all you guys came in and all the dogs, man, it was just unbelievable because they were just as friendly and as loving as any other dog. And then when I said something like, can you make them make a noise like they're and they all started barking and my goodness, it scared the bejeebers out of me. I, it was it was an incredible experience. And it's quite a relationship between the handler and the dog, isn't it? It is. And it, uh, that's one of the most important things is just the bond that develops over the time between uh, between the dog and the handler. Um we, we get to spend so much time with our dogs um, that uh, there's just a relationship that grows that, uh, you know, you don't really get to um, appreciate or, you know, respect how strong it is until, uh, until you actually see us together and doing stuff together. Yeah, it's it's an incredible chemistry. So and, and one thing we have to clarify, this isn't a pet. This is a working dog. There's a big difference here, isn't there? Yeah, they're they're very different. They're very different. You know, these dogs aren't a uh, normal household pet. Um, they're one of those dogs that, you know, when you see a litter of puppies and you see that, that one dog that's crawling around on the other dogs and bite them and jump around or just won't settle down. And, you know, you think, man, I don't think I want that dog. Well, it's the dog that we want. We like to focus that energy um, and, and put it to work for us. And, and, you know, some of their abilities are absolutely amazing. So you're looking, our, our handlers will look for the most energetic pup in, in a litter, for example. Yeah, we, we look at all kinds of things. Like, we want that dog that's going to kind of be uh, outgoing and not shy away from stuff and yeah. not, not be too aggressive, but be very curious. And we try to channel that energy towards the things we need them to do. So talk about what the average day was like for Jake and, and what the, the working life of a police dog is. Um, I don't know that there is an average day. Um, yeah. Like, for us as the canine unit, we're... We're like a support service for uh, for the police department. So I tell people, my dog to me is uh, is almost like a radar gun to a traffic guy, right? He's a tool. Yeah. So yeah. we kind of, we're out and about. We're not really assigned to a patrol or to a function. We're just out and about trying to help wherever we can. Um, so all of our dogs are, are human scent trained. Um, so, you know, any situation where, you know, patrol may get into or any specialty units need uh, assistance with finding anything that may have human scent on it, you know, a, a robbery or something where uh, we need to find some items or somebody's jumped out of a stolen car and run away and we're going to try and track them. It's, uh, it's basically just kind of listening to what's going on in the air in the city and where we can give assistance with the dog. 
And I understand the dogs live with you, but they don't live in the house. Is that accurate? They do, yeah. So we have to have accommodations to become a, a part of the canine unit. There's a few things. Um, so like a backyard has to be able to facilitate like a kennel or a living area for him. So he's got like a, a 12 by 6 kennel in the back with, uh, you know, an insulated doghouse, a roof and stuff. And that's where he spends a, a majority of his time. Some of these dogs, if, I mean, you got to keep them focused. You got to keep them, you know, they're pretty high drive, very high energy. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, you got to keep them uh, exercised and out and about, even on the days off. So even though, you know, you've finished your shift and you have a couple of days off before the next one, you still on your days off have to keep these dogs busy or, you know, some of them can get pretty destructive. <laughs> and and I'm guessing he doesn't know your schedule or what is day off. It's all a day on for him as far as he's concerned. Yeah, no. And it's funny because I tell people, you know, we used to have a couple of days off in between shifts and there weren't really any days off. You know, we were out doing a work, <laughs> doing a walk, doing a run, doing something just to keep busy. You know, it might be a day off for me, but it's not for him. <laughs> so what happens during retirement? Because retirement's tough for anybody, especially somebody in the Hamilton Police Service. This is a this is a lifestyle. It's a commitment. What's it? What's that like? And I mean, he served a long time. Ten years is a long time for for a police dog, is it not? Yeah, it's. It's long, and it's funny you say that because it's uh, it's literally been ten years today to the day that Jake came home with me when I first got him. So today is like mm. the ten year anniversary of him coming to live with me. <laughs> so wow. I mean, as far as retirement goes, he doesn't. Uh, I don't think he really realizes, you know, retirement what it is, what it isn't. But uh, the next month or two is going to be a big adjustment for him. Um, you know, I tell people that they get the one day a year where they have the you know take your dog to work day. Um, you know, and they're happy and they bring their dog in and it's, it's once a year and they look forward to it. I look back and I think I had 10 years of that every single day. It was take your dog to work day for me. So, yeah. So what's it like for you now, Kevin, to not, are you obvious, are you back on regular patrol? Are you part of the canine unit still? What happens to you? What happens to the officer? I, uh, I started back on patrol actually, uh, two days ago. I've got two shifts back in, I'm back on patrol and it's mm-hmm. a bit of adjustment for both of us. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, moving forward, do this again, or does it get spread around? How many dogs, how many canine units are there in the service? Uh, we have four. Uh, we had a little pilot project where we had five dogs last year. I got extended a little bit, uh, which was good because Jake got another year in. Um, but people know the Hamilton Police Service was the first uh, municipal service in Ontario um, to have a formal canine unit, second in Canada. So, hmm. um it's, it's got quite the history there. So what happens is we come in, we work one dog, and then uh, once that dog retires, we go back to patrol and someone else is, uh, is rotated in. Yeah. Well, Constable Kevin Wilson with us and handler for Jake for 10 years, who, uh, oddly enough, 10-year anniversary today with the Hamilton Police Service that he came down with, uh, came home with Kevin. Kevin, congratulations to you. I remember very vividly meeting you and, the, and Jake, and it, it was so great to meet you then. It's so great to uh, announce Jake's retirement, and all the best to both of you moving forward. I appreciate it, Scott. Thank you very much, and thanks to everybody who supported us over the last ten years. Everybody we've had contact with, we are uh, we appreciate it. And uh, Jake will uh, will be happy at home for a very long time. Odd, were um, a lot of stories about about jets and, and air travel of late. Whether uh, that situation in Japan, where the two planes uh, end up clipping each other, the, you know what happened there. Uh, the story of uh, an Alaskan. Uh, plane that uh, the, the door or the optional door blows out and and how fortunate that was that there was no loss of life there and and you know, you know even to the point we're talking about the door and a phone that fell 
from the plane. Well, this is uh, another bizarre situation where an Air Canada passenger boarded a flight to Dubai and then instead of taking their seat, decided to go out the back door of the airplane and dropping right to the tarmac. To find out more about all of this, Sean O'Shea, consumer and investigative reporter with Global News. He's here now. Sean, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Sean. So what happened here? The, it sounds like this this person just got on the plane and then immediately went to the door and to get out? Yeah, you set it up very well. The the, the flight to 56 Air Canada, which is a, you know, a late flight to Dubai. Uh, according to Air Canada, he gets on the flight and rather than going to the seat, uh, went to the opposite side of the of the uh, of the aircraft and uh, opened the door, opened the closed door and fell to the concrete below. Um, obviously, you're not supposed to open the door. Sometimes when you get on a flight, there will be the opposite door open when they're bringing in food and other kinds of supplies, but that door is mm-hmm. usually blocked off. So he, he intentionally opened this door and, uh, and fell out. Now, the field police just got back to us with an update uh, in the last few minutes. Um, they've not laid charges. Uh, they're saying that the man was in a state of crisis or distress and that was why he did it, and that uh, his injuries were relatively minor. But, uh, Scott, you can appreciate, especially with what you've just said about airplane doors and Boeing doors now, Mm. uh, people are rightfully concerned about safety on aircraft. Uh, It's interesting because some may think or wonder, is it that easy to open a plane door? Uh, Because I understand it's not. And and obviously, when you're in flight, it's impossible to open a plane door like that because of the the, the pressurization in the cabin uh, of such. But is it that easy? I mean, what do we know? Well, you made that statement about uh, not being able to, and that's what we typically thought until a few months ago. And there was an aircraft incident where they were able in the last five months uh, on a flight uh, at a lower altitude to open up the door. They're supposed to be difficult to open. And, and for anybody that tunes in our newscast tonight at, at 6 o'clock, we'll have an aviation expert from California who was a training captain on the um, on the 777, which is the, the kind of plane that was used here. It's not supposed to be easy. Most people wouldn't do it. Most people want to get seated, get on their flight, get on their way. But uh, in this case, in this example, uh, he was able to do it. And that's the reality of things. People uh, have a view that things are difficult, but it was easy to do. It was easy enough for him to do quickly, which is which is the frightening thing here, Scott. So obviously there was some sort of personal situation, um, a crisis with this person, and, and, and that was what their action was. Why so much the delay afterwards to get this plane back up? Um, it took about five or six hours. Um, I, I'm... I'm speculating here, having done enough stories with respect to aviation, that once there's an incident, there's an investigation and a lot of questions are asked and everybody is, is uh, you know, was was held accountable for what they did or didn't do. They may well have had to change the uh, the flight crew out as well because of, of mm-hmm. delays and you're only allowed to be uh, up for a certain number of hours. Uh, Air Canada didn't tell us that. Um, but the consequence of anything that happens at the airport or or on a flight, it, it's never it's never quick. That's what happened here. I mean, the good news is uh, he's okay, and nobody else was injured here, and that it did happen on the ground, as opposed to an incident that would have happened in the air, which might have had completely different uh, results. Do we know, Sean, if this was perhaps an accident in any way, or was you know because the door opened and he fell out? Was do we know that as opposed to I got to get off the plane, door opens and I jump? Do we know any of that? 
There was no uh, information, Scott, from the police or from any of the other information that was given us by the airline that there was any kind of a problem. It appears to have been intentional and that that's why he went out the door. Uh, I can't think of another case like this. Um, People do all kinds of strange things around airplanes, but uh, not usually uh, trying to trying to get out. People have, you know, been known to touch the doors and tamper with them, but not open Mm. them. Uh, so this may cause the airline and the airline industry to think again about all the kinds of protocols. I will say there, Canada told me in a statement that uh, that they did follow all the protocols uh, when it comes to what they were supposed to do on the ground. Um, and so one would think if that's the case, then uh, then there's not much to change. But uh, they, they made that, that statement uh, to us earlier today. So do we know, Sean, if charges will be laid or is this is this case over? Is it closed, moved on, nothing to see uh, here? I, I just, Scott, asked that question again to Peel Police based on what they said. It doesn't appear to be so. Usually when charges are going to be laid, they'll tell you that, especially since this happened on, on Monday and it's now Wednesday. It appears based on what they've said. I also contacted the Transportation Safety Board in Ottawa because they will often look at incidents, not just accidents. Uh, they've not responded as well. It appears at this point that there are no charges, but... That could change. All right. Sean O'Shea with us, consumer and investigative reporter with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this and a bizarre situation after um, just a a couple of uh, bizarre stories in aviation over the course of the week. Sean, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. We remember when Krispy Kreme came to Canada. And it was a while ago now, a few years ago, and it was like, oh, my goodness, everybody was freaking out. And then they were gone pretty much as fast as they got here, kind of like a target. Although some locations, uh, I guess the stronger ones, I don't know how they decided, they remained. Well, get ready, Tim Hortons fans. Krispy Kreme is coming to the hammer. A fight on home turf, no less. Uh, let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. And here now, Bruce, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me on the program. So, Bruce, they were here before, then they left. Now they're coming back, and I know they didn't fully leave, but they certainly scaled back tremendously from what they initially had started. What's different here? Yeah, I think the difference is they've probably taken a bit of a different strategy. You know, I think when they came here, I remember going to their shop in Mississauga, which I think was one of the only ones in Canada around 2001 uh, or early 2002, and, uh, you know, I think everyone just went, went, went crazy for them, right? It was just such a big novelty. But then a few things happened. There was a whole issue around carbs and around sugar and healthy eating. And they kind of, they kind of backed off a bit on that. And they started selling through people like Walmart and, and everyone. But I think now what they've done is they've tried to sort of pare back and take more of a strategic approach. I think they've really positioned themselves more as a specialty donut chain versus, you know, like a Tim Horton sort of donut chain where they're everywhere. I remember hearing at one point that when you had to buy a lot of the supplies, you had to buy them through American suppliers, blah, 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 that that, that was an issue. Uh, is that still the case or was does that even a factor? Yeah, I'm not even sure right now. I think a Canadian group has taken them over. I think there's some Canadian ownership up here. Right. And uh, they've probably done things a little different now. I mean, you know, they have to they have to allow the people who own it to make money. Right. And that's one of the issues that in franchising often pops up is restricted laws and rules around who they buy materials from. And really, that's just the, you know, the, the mothership making more money off the franchisees, right? So I think they have to make it in a way so that, you know, the franchisees can be profitable as well, or else, you know, the show's over. I mean, you just have to look at Timmy's, Tim Hortons, 
in some of the uh, turbulence they've had with their franchisees over the last decade or so. Why Hamilton? This is Tim Horton uh, turf, after all. I mean, is this sending a signal? I think it could be a little bit of fun like that, but I think it's more about just how the Hamilton area has grown, especially since the pandemic, right? A lot of Mm. folks who lived in Toronto have sort of moved out toward Hamilton or Burlington, you know, St. Catharines, Oakville, that whole area. And uh, I think, you know, it's just shown that there's been an increase in population of Hamilton. And they probably just see that as, as the next big market they want to conquer. I saw somebody on social media said, yeah, but what about the coffee? Uh, that's also a big staple at Timmy's. What about that? Yeah, I don't think they're going to be able to compete with Timmy's on coffee. They're going to offer coffee, obviously. But, you know, if you look at the coffee market in Canada, Tim's has just an absolute stranglehold on the Canadian coffee market. McDonald's is not too bad as well. And obviously, um, you know, Starbucks for more of an affluent customer. But you know what? People might grab a coffee there, but they're not going to draw everyone in for their morning coffee. It's not about that. It's more about saying, hey, I feel like something different. Let's go try, you know, an exotic donut over at Krispy Kreme that's going to blow our mind from a sugar standpoint and, uh, you know, kind of do something something different. Uh, what about the open kitchen concept um, where you actually watch the donut being made? It reminds me of the little tiny Tim Tom or whatever it was at the exhibition you used to see every year where they just plops them out and goes through the grease and comes out the other end. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Um, I think that's a good move by them because, you know, they have to show sort of how they make the donuts. It's all about sort of the brand and how they're showing how the brand cultivates the donuts and how it's made. So it definitely makes sense. I think they had that as well at the Mississauga location, at least when I was there 20 years ago. But definitely it's a, it's a good move for them. It really sort of differentiates them from the Tim's of the world and the other uh, donut shops. Uh, at one time, I guess, Tim's used to make their donuts in-house. Now it's a more streamlined uh, sort of uh, supply chain that, that they bake the donuts. I don't want to say too much because I don't know that much about how they make donuts now. Is this going to be a donut competition? Like, we're showing you how the donut's made. We're never going to beat them in coffee, but this is a better donut? No, it's more of a specialty donut. So there, there's actually a few places that are kicking around right now that appeal to Generation Z and Millennials where it's sort of a specialty donut. It's a donut that is more expensive. It has, you know, different flavors on it. And it's something you would buy once in a while, maybe once a month or once every quarter. So it's not going to be positioned the same way that that, uh, Timmy's is doing it with donuts. It's going to be much more of a luxury donut. And will Tim's react to this? How do they react to this info? Yeah, they're going to sort of, you know, smirk a little bit and say, okay, you're on our home turf, but you know, they're probably just going to continue rolling, right? They, they have such a stranglehold in the Canadian market. Tim's main focus right now is expanding overseas. You know, they're launching in uh, South Korea. They've launched in India. They launched in the UK. They kind of missed the ball a bit in uh, the U.S., but their main, uh, you know, focus is international expansion to grow. They're already doing really well in Canada. Uh, you mentioned uh, different ways of marketing and, and, and I guess picking your niche of the donut world. Um, I remember like you can buy Krispy Kreme donuts in grocery stores in the U S exactly, exactly. And that's something that, you know, they did that even in Canada. Like I mentioned, you know, I I remember after things kind of softened for them, I saw them in Walmart. I saw them at the gas station. So I think what they've tried to do is probably clean that up, stop those distribution channels, because you can't have it both ways, right? You can't be sort of a mass merchant brand 
and be a specialty brand. You got to pick one or the other. And it looks like they've picked sort of the specialty channel. How many locations can they grow to doing this, do you think? Well, I think they've got six or 12 now. So, you know, they might be able to add a few locations here and there, but not too many. You know, one per major city is probably really all they need. So, you know, if you map it out and give them one per major city, that's probably all they need. Maybe in big cities like a Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver, you might have two or three. But, you know, for other cities, Halifax, Calgary, you just need one or two there. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID-19 on Krispy Kreme coming to the hammer. Bruce, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, be well, Scott. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've talked on the show a lot about artificial intelligence and trying to figure out what it means to the world as we move forward. Artificial intelligence and educational institutes, boy, that's a whole other octopus onto its own with all sorts of tentacles going in in various directions when it comes to uh, what we learn, how we learn it, and assignments, work that we hand in, materials and such. But here's an angle we may have not uh, heard about. Amid a rise in artificial intelligence, deep fakes and other forms of digital harassment experts are, urge, are urging school curriculum updates for online behavior in other words cyberbullying harassment sexual and sometimes in nature uh, within our educational situation through the students uh, becoming victims of this let's bring in dr caitlin mendes an associate professor at western university in london ontario canada research chair in in inequality and gender and here now caitlin thank you for the time i hope you're well Thanks so much for having me. Describe a little bit more about this problem, Caitlin, because when we think of artificial intelligence, there's so many different issues, subjects that come to mind, especially when it comes to education. And specifically, let's be honest, kids cheating, doing stuff, using other people's work, plagiarism and such. But this is a whole different angle, isn't it? A hundred percent. And I think what's really amazing is just how fast the technology is changing and developing and how accessible it is for people with very little tech skills to be able to actually use the technology to generate images, to generate text. We've seen that with ChatGPT. It's incredibly user-friendly. And, you know, young people and, and old people alike are actually quite keen to adopt it. So speak to the problem. Give us an example. What's happening here? Okay, well, what we've seen recently, and there was a case that came out of Winnipeg a few weeks ago, although we'd heard cases coming out of the States as well, uh, we're starting to see the use of AI to actually generate porn. So taking uh, young people's images and creating pornographic images or videos with it. And this is really damaging because the images look so real. And so it's obviously very devastating for people who are victims of it. And it's something that, you know, we don't have enough conversations with young people or anybody really about the ethics of, of doing these kinds of things and the harm that it can cause for victims. How do we bring this into the school curriculum, especially at the university level? Or, and, and really, when you think about it, it should be done at the elementary school level. A hundred percent. I think we need to be talking about, you know, the realities of technology and the role that it plays in our lives. So um, there's lots of opportunities to bring it into the curriculum. It can be brought into kind of health. It can be brought into IT. Um, you know, there's lots of different ways that we can start having these kinds of conversations. And what we know from looking at, at the curriculum across Canada is that these are topics that aren't being talked about. And, you know, it's not necessarily the teacher's fault um, because they're following the curriculum. And the curriculum usually gets updated about every 10 years. 
Mm-hmm. And if you think about all that's changed in the past 10 years, for example, you know, we can, we can see how it can be really hard for schools to keep up to date, but it's really important that they do because, you know, young people need to understand the realities, the consequences, but also their rights and their responsibilities. So this is really a new chapter in cyberbullying. It's, we're here. Absolutely. And I mean, we actually really recommend that, you know, it's not that cyberbullying is a word that we shouldn't use, but we need new language to describe these kinds of things. So if you have, you know, your image that, you know, uses AI, it's turned into porn. That's not bullying. That's actually a form of gender-based sexual violence. And I think if we continue to call it bullying, it can minimize the problem, diminish it, make people feel like it's not real. And it also limits the kind of supports and perhaps legal systems um, that they can access to help, you know, put things right. So it's more than cyberbullying with uh, altered naked pictures. A hundred percent. And again, I think it's really important to have the language to be able to say that this isn't just bullying, that this is something um, that, you know, potentially has legal consequences to it. So this is more about education than it is policing. I think education is the way to go. I mean, the reality is that most people don't turn to the law. It's important to know Mm. our rights and our responsibilities. But I think knowing about, you know, how can we act ethically, knowing about the importance of, you know, privacy, bodily autonomy, why it may be harmful or wrong to generate pornographic images of someone else. If you see that these images are circulating, you know, what can you do to be a bystander or an upstander and say this is wrong or at least at the very least, not forward these on and kind of perpetuate the harm. You know, one thing to have images shared that were personal, another thing to have images created out of out of nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. And again, with the technology, it's so easy to do. And I think, you know, the people who are creating these images, they may not be doing it maliciously. Maybe they just think it's fun. Maybe they think it's a joke. Maybe they're just bored. But I think it's important to talk to young people and say, you know what? You may think it's funny or maybe you you don't even think about the consequences, but it is really, really harmful for the victims. So the the education tone is even less about how you prevent this from happening to you and more about, hey, this is not acceptable. A hundred percent. And thinking about like how we have a collective responsibility to make sure that this doesn't happen. So it's not just about protecting yourself. But how can we make sure that other people in our community are not doing this, or at least if it happens to them, that we support them, we don't shame them or blame them, or kind of add to the humiliation that they're probably already experiencing? How big a problem is this, Caitlin? It's really hard to know. (laughs) These are things that haven't, you know, there aren't really great measures. So we kind of find out about them through various children's agencies, like Kids Help Phone Line. Um, I suspect that the problem is, greater than we know, um, but it's really hard to say. So I'm actually doing research at the moment. We're going around talking to Canadians about these experiences and probably maybe six to eight months, I'll have a better idea of exactly how prevalent this is. So we only got a few seconds left here, Caitlin. So what happens if you think you're a victim of this? What should you do? There's lots of great places you can reach out to. It depends where you are in Canada, but I would say reach out to Kids Help Phone Line is a really great place to start, and they'll be able to help direct you to other services, perhaps local services in your city or province. Dr. Caitlin Mendez, with us, Associate Professor at Western University, London, and Canada Research Chair in Equality and Gender, uh, talking about AI and how that has changed online behavior. Caitlin, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well, when we're kind of at a time where we're being very confused about what is going on uh, with the law and who enforces it, uh, specifically in regard to uh, pro-Palestinian demonstrations or protests we're seeing that have obviously crossed the line uh, to the point we're threatening a police officer and nothing is done. And then a reporter who asks a question to a, a deputy prime minister and bumps into a a security officer who basically sets a pick on him is is charged, eventually let go. On the heels of that, we're hearing of a 22-year-old convenience store clerk from Peterborough who's been charged with uh, following a confrontation with a baseball bat-wielding robber. So officers at the scene said the male employee was helping a male customer in the store and a second man brandishing a bat, baseball bat, enters the store, demands the clerk hand over the cash. A struggle ensued. The suspect strikes the worker of the convenience store with the bat. The clerk then allegedly grabs the bat away from the suspect uh, who fled the store, followed him out of the store, hits him several times with the bat on the sidewalk. Uh, the suspect uh, sustained head injuries, now at treatment in a Toronto hospital. The clerk, whose name has not been revealed, was treated at the scene by paramedics and subsequently charged with aggravated assault and has to appear in court. Uh, police say they intend to charge the robbery suspect, uh, a 37-year-old, with robbery assault with a weapon, possession of a weapon. They're looking for that other customer who can add some insight to all of this. Ari Goldkind with us, Toronto criminal lawyer, legal expert here now. Ari, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Happy New Year. This is the magic of Zoom. You have to remember to hit the unmute button. How's that? I know. I hear you, Ari. No problems. No problems. All right. You know the story here. At what point does this go from protecting yourself, self-defense, or even your property to an assault? What what are your thoughts? Yeah, so great question. I know we have two really juicy subjects. The first one is the one that is much more clear-cut and less exciting. Let me tell you why. While there are some people online understandably going, wait a minute, you're charging the guy who was getting robbed for defending himself? What kind of banana republic stupid country do we live in? Well, leaving aside the wisdom of that last question, because we are living in a world where the police are handcuffed to arrest anybody, welcome to Toronto, my city. Yeah, This is very clear cut. Here's what happens. The robber goes in brings a bat with him. He deserves whatever's coming to him in the struggle with the clerk. But once that struggle is over, this is the key. Once the struggle is over, it looks like the robber is trying to get away. The clerk has gotten the bat. And on video, because the chief of police in Peterborough, who actually came out with a muscular response today, unlike the feckless coward of a chief of police in my city, who can't arrest terrorists, or people breaking the law, the Peterborough police chief made it very clear that they have video. And here's the key to it for your listeners. The clerk has been charged with aggravated assault. Now, in Canada, you can only use as much force as is necessary, reasonably, Mm -hmm. when your life or the life of another is in peril. But once that initial struggle finishes in the Uh, shop or in the store, it looks like there is a little bit of retribution happening. Now, many of your listeners will say, good, the robber has it coming. Okay, I understand that from a guttural level, but that's not a country that believes in the rule of law or being civilized. And as much as this country is descending into stupidity, 
We can't go down that road. And the reason I say aggravated assault is because that is an extraordinarily serious assault just under attempted murder. What that means is that assault could be me just pushing you or making a fist like, you know, you'll see in the movies where somebody makes a fist like they're going to knock you out. An aggravated assault is maiming, wounding. What that means is breaking the skin. And it also means endangering the life of another. So to me, the police are absolutely right to charge here. This is not a story. I think the way the story has been told is that the clerk got charged for defending himself in the store. And that's only the beginning of the story, Mm -hmm. not the ending. Well said. All right. Got to get your opinion on the situation with the deputy prime minister and the reporter trying to ask questions. We know there's been a history of this with this reporter. Nothing new. That's the sort of thing he does. That being said, it certainly appears he didn't deserve to be handcuffed or charged or arrested or any of that. What are your what's your take? So here's where people become ideologically bankrupt, Scott. If you're of a view that because you don't like rebel news or you don't like Ezra Levant, or you don't like David Menzies, that somehow the rules of who gets charged criminally apply differently to a journalist that you like versus a journalist that you don't like. You're really entering into very, very dangerous U.S.-like territory where your political affiliation means that the rule of law will be applied differently to you. Now, why do I introduce my answer like that? I see so many mouth breathers on Twitter saying, and by the way, most people quite rightly see this as the thuggish act of a thuggish cop that should not only be fired, but in my view, Scott, that thug of a cop should be charged with a crime. He committed at least two on David. But if this was your favorite journalist, and by the way, this is on the same day where Christopher Friedland tweets out nonsense about Iran and nonsense about the plane crash. And all David Menzies does, which most journalists don't have the temerity to do, which is get in her face and ask her a question, not physically, but in her face with a microphone. I I think there should be more of that holding public officials to account than less. Then you have a cop almost like setting a football pick for your Sunday football listeners. He almost sets a pick, makes Menzies run into him, lures him into a trap that Menzies is even looking where he's going. And then in some pre-orchestrated, disgusting way. And by the way, Scott, if your listeners haven't seen the video, they're really behind the eight ball in what I'm talking about because I'm not exaggerating. So Menzies ends up getting arrested in the most horse manure. And that's a nice way of me saying another word that ends with uh, a word I won't say that starts with bull. He gets arrested in the most egregious way. He really should sue. Uh, It is disgusting you got to separate out rebel news. You know, if you're a far left woke person listening to me, pretend it's like, you know, Mehdi Hassan on MSNBC who was talking to uh, Christina Freeland. It doesn't matter. And the proof of the pudding, Scott, is that within a few hours of the you-know-what hitting the fan, he gets released without any charges. So clearly somebody at the station saw this, looked at it, and said, What the you-know-what are we doing? We are not pursuing this. This is a bogus arrest. And it really, to me, as a lawyer, I put my lawyer hat back on now, you can hate people all you want in this country. But if you think that the criminal justice system should be weaponized against journalists asking questions, 
or people even accidentally bumping into other people, that is a country that will be as bad as the country that I think we're descending into. Ari Goldkind with us, Toronto criminal lawyer, legal expert on uh, just some issues of the day that uh, need tending to. We'll leave it at that. Ari, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Great to be with you. We know the state our uh, our armed forces are in, and it, it just seems to be getting worse and worse, and um, hard to uh, live up to agreements and and missions that the world wants us to jump on. Uh, there's been lots of talk about equipment and buying uh, new equipment, procuring new equipment, and there was an announcement uh, about the old. Uh, it was an F-15, I think, when they started, then something else, and then now it's an F-35 by the time we end up buying this thing. And we ended up doing it with Boeing, Bombardier, Canadian company, not so much. But then now Bombardier has won a small contract, uh, certainly compared to the other one, to develop a new spy plane prototype for the U.S. To talk more about that, Richard Schmuka with a senior fellow, McDonnell Laurier Institute, with an expertise in Canadian and foreign defense policy and here now. Richard, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks, Scott. So tell us about this plane and this deal with the United States and Bombardier. Sure. So it's there's multiple programs. There's multiple iterations of this program. Uh, it's, it's basically a batch of capabilities. But the most recent one that was announced just about a week ago here is for a global 6500, which is basically Bombardier's flagship uh, long-range uh, business jet. Right. And they've sold, uh, they've sold. I think around eight or nine at this point uh, of these jets to the U.S. Army and and various contractors in order to modify them uh, to undertake what's generally called uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance missions. And these are the ability to sort of sense what's going on on a land battlefield using uh, new sensors or existing sensors and sort of networking them all together on these aircraft in order to get a very sort of detailed insight of what is going on on the battlefield so this program uh it's it's they they have a hard order for at least one prototype but there's an option for two more i think next year if the u.s army decides to uh follow this path and all signs point they probably will because this program is quite uh quite heavily funded and well supported within the u.s army uh they will continue to sort of be basically the premier sub, uh, supplier of this type of this aircraft type going forward so this is a good plane right plane for the job it fits it's perfect i mean this this the the size of the aircraft is is perfect for this specific mission set uh which is overland reconnaissance uh it's got very long range this is a one of the top business jets in the world designed to you know travel long long distances so that ability to sort of loiter for you know eight nine hours is is basically what the u.s army wants and Thirdly, it operates at a very high altitude. And if you think about the Earth's curvature and, and sort of the ability to sort of sense deeply into a battlefield, the, the, the term they use is deep sensing. Uh, this is the sort of the ideal aircraft to operate this specific mission set. Many think uh, Bombardier should be supplying everything or, or get first dibs at anything Canada is buying. But this is just a, t a different situation. What, what are your thoughts on all of that? No, that's absolutely the case. I mean... So if you look at the mission set for maritime surveillance, which is and, mar and uh, maritime patrol aircraft, which is what Canada just bought in this recent order, uh, you, you need range, certainly, uh, but you also need a much more heavier sort of aircraft that is able to carry um, either a missile payload or a torpedo to sort of attack targets underwater. 
And also at sea, you need some more robustness uh, in an aircraft because they're going to operate at lower altitudes often. So in this case, Bombardier didn't have an aircraft that kind of fit this mission set. They had a paper aircraft. They sort of showed nice photos and they had some preliminary design work. But that aircraft didn't exist. And and also, yeah. if you look at the P-8, which is what we we bought from uh, from Boeing, the aircraft is 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 basically used by almost all of our major partners for this mission set. It's a mature system. Right. Whereas if we were to go Bombardier, they don't have an aircraft. They now they had uh, general di- dynamic mission systems, which cur- which basically designs and and maintains the current mission systems on our Aurora, which is our existing. Uh, our existing maritime patrol aircraft that they can they could have worked together, but that's a huge cost. And if we look at, we're trying to save money. We're trying to be effective right. militarily as well. You kind of don't want to try to build it all on your own. You, at times, you want to identify capabilities that you could buy off the shelf, as it's known, and put those into service. And in this case, an aircraft that is used by every single one of our major ally. In that case, it made sense to go and purchase the P-8. Uh, I can't let you go, Richard, without your thoughts of defense spending in Canada and how do we get to where we need to be? I think, I don't love the the sort of whole debate around 2%, but I think it's a really useful sort of yardstick upon which that we can kind of identify. And we're at like 1.36 or something like that at this time. And and what really happens with the Canadian forces is that we kind of have set deployments. Like the amount that we put our forces out into the world, whether it be you know one or two ships in the Indo-Pacific or you know two thousand uh, troops that are going to go to Latvia in, in the coming years, those are kind of set known requirements. What happens is when we don't spend enough, we don't spend the the to get to that two percent is that we kind of raid what's known as the capital budget, the equipment that mm. sustains them. And that's really challenging for the Canadian Forces because they're they're using really old, outdated equipment, stuff that should have been replaced earlier. And the cost to maintain and, and sort of keep those systems working in the existing battlefield, not even talk about the future battlefield, is really high. And so that's really, it's it's really costing more of the Canadian Forces and it's it's affecting the morale of the troops on the ground. So it's, it's not a great situation. So at least if we can get to 2%, in reality, we actually would have to go higher to sort of get rid of some of the really old equipment. If we at least get to that benchmark, that would really help the KO forces because at this stage, it's not in great shape. Richard Schmuka with a senior fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute, expertise in Canadian and American foreign and defense policy. Richard, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We continue our coverage of the war in Gaza and try to understand what is going on in reactions uh, around the world to it, including here at home, broadening perspectives of, of what has taken place here. Uh, let's bring in Thomas Woodley, president of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East and is here now. Thomas, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So thanks for taking the time. It's been hard to get a perspective from uh, the, the Palestinian protester side on the air. We've been trying for, for, for quite a long time in order to try to understand this. What do you want Canadians or what's the message to Canadians who are seeing this go on on the streets of their towns and cities across the country, what have you, and trying to understand it? 
Well, I think there, there's probably a number of different things, but I think foremost, it's uh, it's concern over Palestinian life and, and human rights and liberation. Uh, you know, the, 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 the conflict didn't start on October 7th. It started, you know, at a minimum, you want to go back to 1948 with the creation of the mm-hmm. State of Israel, which was created on, on land which uh, to which the Palestinians were an indigenous people. And you might have heard about Palestinian refugees, and well, they came from 1948. They were dispossessed from their from their homes and lands. And so, what we're seeing today is, you know, now now you know, there's there's bombing in Gaza, and there's you know, 20,000 plus Palestinians who've been killed in Gaza, and uh, there's concern that those those people have names, they have lives, they have dreams, and uh, and I think the the people protesting in the streets uh, want to make sure that you know they're they're. they're their lives matter, and that people understand that what's going on is, is a is a terrible uh, terrible crime against humanity. Uh, certainly, we know that in in Canada, as we're dealing with issues around indigenous uh, 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 our indigenous past and residential schools and such. For me, uh, and again, uh, you, you know, we can go back and, and, and debate history. That's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying no, to move forward not. and understand this. But for me, it's not um, Palestinians versus Israelis. It's not one religion versus another religion. It's not left versus right. It's not territory versus territory. It's about uh, democracy and freedom versus. Uh, authoritarianism and terrorism. Is that accurate? How do Palestinians differentiate themselves from Hamas, who seem to be sucking the oxygen out of the room? Okay, so you said a lot of things that I'd uh, be interested in responding to there, so let me let me talk to a few things. Uh, so, so um, I guess... Um, so I think in terms of, first of all, it, it, is, it is not a question. First, first, I don't know. first of all, you know, democracy is more than just having elections. There are a lot of countries in the world that have elections that don't have democracy. Uh, democracy depends on a lot of different things, uh, a, a, a vibrant media, uh, the uh, space for, for um, uh, opposition, space for, for dissension, and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't, I, yeah, Palestinians had elections uh, in 2006, but the West didn't like the outcome of the elections, and so uh, <laughs> they were told they, 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 they made the wrong choice. Uh, I, I don't think many Palestinians, um, I, I don't, I, you know, just as I, I, you know, not every Canadian uh, agrees with the, with the Liberal Party. Well, not every, not every Palestinian agrees with Hamas. Uh, I think Hamas itself is, a, is an expression of the frustration of the Palestinians um, in terms of, you know, living under occupation, military occupation, living under apartheid. Amnesty International put out a report in February 2022 saying that Israel practices a regime of apartheid against Palestinians. I think, Scott, I, I looked you up on the Internet. You're about as old as I am. We have gray hair. We remember South Africa, uh, South African apartheid. It was a terrible, terrible situation. Uh, raci- racially based laws. I don't think anyone should have to live under a system where, where, where people live in different areas based on, based on their religion, based on their ethnic background. Yet that's what the Palestinians live under. So, you know, we, we may expect any sort of oppressed people to be perfectly behaved when they have the opportunity to do so, but these, these are communities and, and, and peoples that have suffered literally over generations. Uh, and, and there's anger and frustration. So, no, not, I, I think a lot of people disagree with what Hamas did on, 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 uh, 
on October 7th. I, I have not met a single Palestinian who agrees with the, with the violence against civilians. On the other end, Hamas did also attack Israeli military installations and soldiers. And so the soldiers that, that Hamas captured are prisoners of war. Let's, let's, let's face it. They're, they're living under, Hamas is living, uh, the Palestinians are living under military occupation when they, when they, when they resist milita- with arms against uh, their uh, a military force occupying them, uh, you know, that's very different than violence against civilians. And I, as I say, I have not met a Palestinian, my wife is Palestinian, I have not met a Palestinian who, uh, who condones what Israel did with civilians on that day. On the other hand, I think Palestinians have a, a, a very strong sense of wanting their liberation, wanting their human rights, wanting to live freely. And I think that's what, that's what they're trying to call attention to. Uh, and I think, you know, let's, if I can say one more thing, uh, I think it's fine. I, 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 I condemn Hamas violence against civilians on October 7th. But let's face it, you know, nobody was talking about you know, how, uh, a two-state solution or any solution for the Palestinians. There haven't been negotiations for almost 10 years, Scott. And, and nobody was talking about that until October 7th. So as much as we, we, we fault the use of violence, and I don't condone the use of violence, on the other hand, it has put the whole issue back on the table. And people are talking about it and saying, yeah, we really do need a sol- solution for the Palestinians, right? We're, do, we're do you think, hearing that let from me, Joe Biden, right? Let me, hear the, let, let me ask you this, Thomas. Do you think sure. that there would be more support from allies if Palestinians somehow separated themselves from Hamas? Because there doesn't seem to be any denunciation of, of what Hamas has done either. Um, um, I, I, I completely agree with what you're saying that not all Palestinians would necessarily, you know, be supporting Hamas. How do we separate that? How do the Palestinians separate themselves from Hamas and get what they're looking for? You know, Palestinians have been separating themselves from Hamas. You know, I would say talk to Palestinians. I, 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 I'm trying, Thomas. I can't get anybody on the air. <laughs> All right, you know what? I'll help you, Scott. I'll help you. Let's let's, let's follow up. I'll get I'll get some Palestinians to talk to you. But I think listening to Palestinians um, and 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 I, I think one of what I mean one of my uh, I think one of the shortcomings of mainstream coverage of this of the past three months is that there is this uh, conflation of Palestinians and Hamas. They are not the same thing. Uh, Palestinians, you know, each Palestinian has a different voice, but there are a lot of there are a lot of, as I said, Hamas is, a, is I think, a reflection of the Palestinian frustration and 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 and. Anger. I understand that Thomas right. completely, but I think I think what's making it very difficult for some to support the Palestinian pro-Palestinian movement is the connection with Hamas. That that has to be separated, whether it's a two-state solution or what have you. I don't pretend to know the answer here. It's much more complicated and requires a bigger mind than mine. But at the end of the day, I, I think that's where allies will have a tough time. Is um, it's hard to defend somebody who defends uh, uh, a terrorist organization. Let me turn it around on you, Scott. I don't know how much time. Let me turn it around. You want to frame it that way. You want to frame it as we can't do anything until there's this separation between Palestinians and Hamas. Why don't we take another? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not assuming that, Thomas. I'm not assuming that at all. I'm not. I'm not assuming you have to make that separation. I'm just no, saying no. that people would have an easier time understanding it if they but, were. But 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 we, we can just as easily talk about another framework. Why don't we say? Why don't, we can't figure this out until we figure out what apartheid is and what Israeli apartheid is. We can't figure this out until we really understand the implications of, of 
you know, 60 years of Israeli military occupation in the West Bank and Gaza. So, you know, you can choose these different starting points, which then put the onus on one or the other. And, and the way you're doing it, you're sort of putting the, the onus on, on the victim of, of occupation and apartheid there. And we can put, you know, why I'm, trying to, put, with, I'm trying to put why the emphasis on the victim. The I'm, Sorry, I'm, trying to pu- I'm trying to put the emphasis on victims of terror. And terror does not seem to be a way to solve the issue. But help me out, understand it, and send me some more guests. Thomas Woodley with us, President of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. All right, talking, uh, been talking a lot at length about the Hamas-Israeli conflict and the war that is going on and the ensuing protests and so on and so forth. Uh, and and it, it certainly raised a lot of questions. And it's unfortunate that um, when we don't have real leadership here that's telling us or, or showing us a way, uh, people have a tendency to go to the extremes. And uh, I think there, we've been witness to that a lot of late. Interesting article by Phil Gursky uh, in the Ottawa Citizen. Canada's open-door immigration policy shouldn't mean anything goes. We need all the skills, expertise, and entrepreneurship new arrivals bring to our country, but we also need to ensure bad apples don't get in. To talk more about all of this, Phil Gursky. President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, and here now, Phil. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hope you're well. I'm well. I'm well, Scott. Happy New Year. Or is it too late to say that in 2024? No, let's go for it. Happy New Year. What the heck? Until we see you for the first time, let's always uh, let's always use that. All right. So uh, it shouldn't mean anything goes. How do we monitor this? Because again, when we don't, we get the extreme. So what should be we do? What should we be doing here so we make sure we get in uh, the productive and, and people that we need and and make sure that terrorists don't. Well, we already have the system in place, Scott. So CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, where I used to work, of course, has what's called a security screening branch. And they look over hundreds of thousands of files a year uh, of people who want to come to Canada as, you know, uh, permanent residents, immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. So we have the the resources and we have the mechanisms in place to actually do these things. Uh, my concern is twofold. Uh, one is that this government has shown an unfortunate tendency not to listen to its intelligence services. You, you and I talked a lot last year about China's interference in the elections and how that got ignored. Uh, secondly, the effort to uh, sort of ramp up very quickly, bringing in people from Gaza, and we, we've all seen the pictures about the suffering in Gaza, the humanitarian mm-hmm. crisis. When you when you try to rush things too much, I'm not I'm a little bit worried that the security services don't have the time necessary to do the requisite background checks because it is entirely possible. And in the article, I even said even entirely probable that a few individuals who try to come to Canada as so-called refugees may in fact have affiliations to Hamas. And remind your listeners, Hamas is a listed terrorist entity here in Canada. Uh, some have compared to uh, how generous Canada has been to Ukraine versus the uh, Palestinians. Um, and should these be looked at equally? I mean, I see one as a democracy. I see one as under rule of a terrorist organization, as you mentioned. So would you not need to be more secure? 100%. These aren't even apples and oranges. These are apples and kumquats, Scott. Um, yeah. You know, we don't worry about terrorists entering from Ukraine, although there are probably some problematic extremists in that country, uh, you know, given what's happened over the past 18 months. But you're absolutely right. I mean, Hamas was elected by the people of Gaza back in 2007. It is the government government of the area. It runs everything. And so, you know, rightly or wrongly, the people of Gaza decided to put them in, in power uh, over the Palestinian, you know, authority kind of thing. So, no, it is a very different situation. And 
you know, given the the, the rise and and we've talked about this, the rise in anti-Semitism, uh, the protests in Hamilton, Toronto, Ottawa, et cetera, et cetera, uh, tempers are flaring, and there is a very real possibility of violence. And we want to make sure that people who come here legitimately are allowed to do so. But it's not at all the same situation as Ukraine. So I I I, I see it as a, as a false analogy. Uh, you say in the article, not all immigrants share our values. I'll play devil's advocate. Do they need to? I think so, but they may, I might be accused of being racist for saying so. And But by values, I, I also recognize, Scott, this is a very you know difficult thing to establish. But at a minimum, we in Canada are a small L liberal secular democracy. That That's the basis of our, of our constitution. That's the basis of our charter. That's the basis of what Canada stands for. If you if you can't accept that, then maybe Canada's not the place for you. I'm not talking about cultural differences, Scott. I'm not talking yeah. about linguistic yeah. differences, faith differences, whatever. I'm talking about people that have to accept that there's a general governance system here in this country. It's been in, in, in this place for more than a century and a half. And that's the bare minimum people have to sign up for if they want to become Canadians. Uh, I was talking to a Middle East expert just uh, before you, and we were, you know, trying to understand both sides of the story and, and what is going on and such. And 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 I said, how do Palestinians or should they somehow separate themselves from Hamas? And again, pointed to this is a, an incredibly complex problem. Uh, debate goes back to the 1940s on whose territory, this, yeah. that, and the other. Um, and, and I totally appreciate that. I mean, we've, we're seen in Canada, the debate over residential schools and, and the past and such. But then again, we come together and we talk about it. We don't, we don't commit acts of terror. Um, and I guess his reaction to as well, you know, when you're suppressed, this is what happens. And I'll ask you, and I've asked you before, but somehow in order for maximum support from Western allies, does this group of people, do the Palestinians need to somehow separate themselves from a terrorist organization? 100%. Because Hamas has called publicly, not just for the complete destruction of Israel. They've called for attacks against Israel's allies, of which Canada is one. Of course, the Americans are the largest supporter of Israel. And those are positions that are simply untenable in Canada. And so, yes, Palestinians have to disassociate themselves. And I think they can. I mean, Hamas is not Palestine, and Palestine is not Hamas. Again, mm-hmm. the Palestinians, yes, in Gaza did vote them in, in, gov- in government uh, almost 20 years ago, but that was really because it was a, a lack of choice. The, the Palestinian Authority was corrupt, and, and you know, they didn't want Yasser Arafat, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, if you can't simply acknowledge that, A, Hamas carried out a heinous attack. And I don't know if you've been reading lately, Scott, about some of the findings on the sexual assaults and the mass rapes and mutilations of women that Hamas did uh, on October the 7th. If you can't at least agree on that, then there's no room in the conversation for you. So, yes, we can we can agree to disagree on Israeli policy. And I've been very critical of Israeli policy, especially in the West Bank and the Yahoo government. But if you can't at least start from the basic premise that Hamas is not just a listed terrorist entity in Canada. They are a group of terrorists who are bent on destruction and will sponsor attacks. We've seen the, ra- the rising of, of threat levels in Western Europe tied to Hamas. And so this is this is very real. And that's that to me is that's your starting point. And if you can't do that, then I'm not sure w- whether there's a conversation to be held at all. Uh, that was my next point. If uh, <laughs> How is there a two-state solution if if you can't make that separation? 
Oh, wow. You know, Scott, in my long career in intelligence for more than three decades, I purposefully stayed away from the Israel-Palestine issue because it's so intractable. Um, yeah. You know, I, I was it um, Golda Meir said a pox on both your houses at one point, the Israeli politician. It seems to be one of these things that's not going away, is not to be easy, easily resolved. I don't know there's an answer to this. There are people more yeah. optimistic than I am. But at a, at a bare minimum, yes, there, it, it's, there needs to be a two-state solution. What that looks like, I'm really not qualified to say. I, I'm cautiously optimistic maybe it'll happen soon but not any time in the immediate future because of the uh the nature of what's happening in gaza and we're seeing tensions all around the world we're seeing the houthis uh in support of hamas uh, sending rockets against ships in the red sea we're seeing isis call for attacks around the world so we're going through a very dangerous time right now but again from a purely Canadian perspective you have a right to protest absolutely but you don't have a right to support a terrorist group that's against the law in our country Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst. As always, Phil, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. We'll talk soon, I'm sure. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you are doing well. Couldn't be better, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. I understand you couldn't be better because Krispy Kreme is coming. Oh, Oh man, <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm sorry. I, 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 I felt that I felt that goober right through the microphone there. I am. I, I'm. I'm. I'm sprayed right now. There I'm is moistly. saliva. Yeah, there is saliva on the You're microphone. You're speaking most moistly there. I, oh yes, yes. We haven't had a chance to speak moistly in a while, but yes, that's. Uh, no, this uh, this is a real problem, Scott. I'm. I'm very concerned. That- what kind of Hamiltonian are you? I am, Tim Hortons or Krispy Kreme, you can't have them both, can you? So, <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to speak ill of our local product, but there is no comparison between a warm, soft, supple Krispy Kreme <laughs> donut fresh out so of the- talking- so you're talking about the basic one, just with the glaze, oh, yeah, right? I don't they're, need... they're really known for the great big honk. They've come in with those too, but that's how I remember it as a kid traveling the U.S. It's just a basic glazed donut. Yeah, yeah. no, no. And and they're, look, they have other ones on um, International Chocolate Day or something a few months ago. I think I was filling in for you, which, you know, too bad for you, but they brought in some <laughs> of the ones they had made just for that day. And they were pretty darn good too. But yeah, do you know what? Yeah. It's the beauty, the beauty of Krispy Kreme to me, and I am not being paid. This is not a commercial endorsement, but the beauty no. is the simplicity. You don't have to put a lot of stuff nope. into it. It's just the plain donut that's got just dipped in sugar and... It's not good for diabetics or people like me who are going to the gym and trying to drop a few. When this thing is opened, Scott, uh, seriously, I'm going to have to put some sort of like restrictor on my car that doesn't <laughs> allow the GPS to get within a hundred yards. It's going to be uh, a problem. Uh, what is, what was your first encounter with the Krispy Kreme? Because um, I, I remember mine very Okay. Good. What's yours? Well, I remember being a kid and, and every year we used to hook up the tent trailer and drive to Myrtle Beach and camp. And in the campground, not a word of a lie, like every Sunday or I, I don't know, a couple times a week, a Krispy Kreme truck would come and just drive like up an ice and cream down. truck with a bell. Yes, yes. Just drive up and down. And like the people chasing it were, it was unbelievable. Well, they were it chasing was... it very fast because they were all 400 pounds, but that's okay. Yeah. There was <laughs> and kids on bikes, everything. It was unbelievable. And like my dad would come back to the campsite with like two boxes of these things, mm-hmm. but they're so light. You could honestly, uh, you know, a big glass of milk and you could do a whole box like that. No problem. Well, that's see, there's the problem because, uh, and again, not a commercial endorsement, but they are very light. Not, they're very light, not calorically light, but they are no. very light. And yes. so you can, very. Airy, you can very easily, 
and I'm not being exact. You tell me if I'm exaggerating. You can very easily put six of those away without much effort before oh, yeah. even realizing <laughs> what you've done. And before then you're the like, tummy ache starts. Well, and then you're like, wow, that was 27,000 calories I just ate, <laughs> but it was delicious and I don't feel full. It's like Chinese food. And then like an hour later, you can eat six more. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, but you know, it's going to, I am going to be interested to see how it works here. We're going to talk about this on the show with some, yeah, with a Cause they were person. here a while ago and they came in like target and then they left and were there was they? just a couple. Well, yes. they were in Mississauga. No, no. They came in with a whole pile of stores like 10 or 20 years ago. Dave Winder and I were talking about this, uh, the retail expert yep. and, and they came in and they had stores wherever they had more than, and then they left, but they only kept like a few of them here and there, including the one in Mississauga. And now they're coming back and doing it again. And I talked with him about this today on the show. We talked about it too. And that, he said, like, you know, you go to the States, you can buy Krispy Kreme donuts in the grocery store. They're yeah. available, like, literally in gas stations. They're available everywhere. Well, occasionally here you can at Costco. They occasionally have yeah. them at Costco. Bruce Winder, but- I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bruce Winder. So, yeah, exactly. So he said, Bruce Winder said, they're not going to do that. They're going to try to go on the decadent donut, like you get the donut monster, whatever, who just do the unbelievable. Yes. They're not really. Which are fantastic. Cakes. No, well, but they're, they're absolutely fabulous in a whole different, whole different category, if you ask me. But he said that they were probably going to try to concentrate on that as opposed to going after uh, the Tim Hortons thing. Although they are uh, going to put the one in Hamilton's going to have an open kitchen so you can see in and they're going to have a drive through. It is, uh, yeah, Ben was just saying that they're going to have gang warfare. There's going to be gangs here. There's going to be the granddads <laughs> versus the Krispy Kreme versus the Tims. It's going to be like an, an anchor man. And where, where, got, where does the coffee fit into this? Does who coffee cares? even matter? Cause <laughs> who cares? Who cares? You know, it's, um, so the coffee, the coffee is not even a factor here. It's, it's going to be really interesting though, to see if people, around here uh, buy into it because there are, it's weird how there are certain fast food, especially fast food places that have worked in certain regions and totally not worked in other regions. Yep. And, you know, we were down in California a few years ago and had always heard, always heard people say, oh, you got to go to In-N-Out Burger. It is the most amazing thing ever. And so we found an In-N-Out Burger and it was fine. It was fine. (laughs) I didn't dislike it. But yeah. I didn't, I wasn't making a trip to California just to go to In-N-Out Burger again. It was fine. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. But people down there talk about it That's in it reverential terms. Like it's the As greatest thing they've ever eaten. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying It's not like the, sh- the, the Shake word. Shack, same sort of thing. Sa- same burgers. kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Though, yeah. So if, with Krispy Kreme coming, the, if all of a sudden, if there was a Chick-fil-A that opens in Hamilton, There's Scott, another one. I am done. I will be, I will be <laughs> round by the end of the year if that happens. Those would be the two big problems. Uh, just fill them up with Chick-fil-A and Krispy Kreme. There yeah, you go. And set He's me happy a, for the night. And put me on my couch with a big bottle of insulin and I'm ready to go. Uh, Pepto-Bismol too would probably help. All right. Uh, more of this. I'm hungry now. Coming up uh, <laughs> after too. six o'clock. After the six o'clock news, you can read Mary Hamilton Spectator. Have a good one, Scott. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. And the last word coming via email from Sandra on our discussion with the Middle East expert and the Hamas-Israeli war. Great, honest, forward, balanced conversation. Thank you, Scott. We try.
Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.